My cousin that I looked up to so much passed away from a drug overdose. My roommate that I saw in Terre Haute, my first guy there died of a drug overdose right when he got out. The guy we sold heroin to died of a drug overdose right when he got out. I was the only one that had made it. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today, I got Matt Conway here, just took a cruise down I-75 to be here. I truly appreciate that, taking some time out of your day, but uh, thanks for being here, brother. Hey, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. So, per the usual, we're going to just rewind the the clock back, talk about uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, and we'll just start from start from the start, where, where you grew up and, and how life was as a kid. Okay. Well, um We'll start at the beginning. I grew up in Kettering, Ohio, which is a suburb south of Dayton. Um, you know, had a great family. Had mom, dad, older sister. It was just us four. Um, I grew up Catholic. And um, as I grew up, you know, I was a pretty shy kid. Uh, got to about the third or fourth grade and made a friend that I was very close with. And then uh, a couple more friends. And then next thing you know, more important than anything else was was my friendship with everyone. I mean, I just wanted to be liked. I wanted to be popular. Uh, I played soccer as a young kid, but I moved into baseball, and then I kind of fell into basketball. And, and when I was in seventh grade, I played football, and football kind of took everything over after I started. But just before that, um, in the sixth grade, you know, I guess is where I could start my criminal history. Uh, again, I was, you know, brought up Catholic, so... We had a huge family. You know, my dad's side was always the party side. My mom's side was always, you know, pretty pretty conservative. And um, my mom's dad and mom were, were pretty strict grandparents. And my dad's mom and dad were partiers, you know what I mean? So, like, um, my dad you had— saw you saw both sides. I you saw both sides. Saw the, the yeah, part. I could tell. You know, you always wanted to go to dad's side sure, of the family because it was like— you know, Lucy, they didn't, Lucy. yeah, they didn't care what you did. There were more kids my age too. I, and I had an older cousin. He was two years older than me and he was my idol. Uh, the guy was phenomenal at golf, football, basketball, anything he played with the ball. He was amazing. And um, so I always kind of looked up to him. And um, when I was in, really, I, it was in the fifth grade, my sister and her friends, she was a, a good kid, um, but she was smoking cigarettes with her friends and I kind of snuck out and ran with them across the street to the, the woods and I kind of showed up when they were smoking cigarettes and they were like, well, you better smoke this, you know? And I smoked a cigarette and they all thought it was cool uh, that I was smoking cigarettes with them and just with them. And um, I, I liked that attention. So I ran with it. And, um, you know, I couldn't wait after I did that to get to the family reunion at my grandma's house and tell my cousin I'd smoke cigarettes, found out he did too. And we went out and we smoked cigarettes together. Uh, after that, you know, he was uh, he was saying that drinking beers would give you a buzz. I had no idea what he was talking about, but he would dare me to chug a couple beers, steal them out of the fridge, and you know, so I would do that because I liked the attention when I did it. So this is like ten, eleven. I was probably eleven when I did the beers first time I drank a beer, um, you know, and and I did that a few times. I never got drunk, but I chugged shotgun. Is what he said. He'd say, you know, shotgun and a beer. That's chugging it. 
can't let it down. He would push me to do it, and I was able to do it, which he thought was crazy. So, And you wanted, again, the attention thing. Yeah. It's crazy. It was, yeah. So, like, you know, I hate to say I did it to be cool, but really when I look back, that's kind of how it was. And so many of us, that's the way it happens. Like you said, shy kid. I was a shy kid, scared kid. But yet you get something risky in front of us when you got people applauding and, you know, cheering you on. It's like go time. Yeah, and it was like, and and I think other things were that way too, like daredevil stuff, like jumping off cliffs or, you know, like you said, Mike was talking about the scale in the sorority house, which I don't remember. But that kind of stuff was stuff I did all the time. Yeah, shout out to Amarine real quick for uh, hooking us up. But yeah, <laughs> thanks. Mike. He, he doesn't he doesn't remember the uh, the sorority house story. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was probably heavily intoxicated. Um, but you know, after that, uh, I found out that um, you know my cousin smoked pot, and I had some friends that we had you know three people in my class that I hung out with had older brothers and sisters that were known for smoking pot. So I guess we were trying to be hippies. You know, we were listening to like 60s music. I mean, I, this was like 92. I don't know when I was like going sixth to seventh grade. And I remember my buddy Marcus's older sister um, smoking a bowl in her room, in his room actually at a party. She had graduated from high school and we were at that party because I was friends with, I was his friend, you know. I was over there, my parents let me stay the night, and I smoked pot. I didn't get high, I just smoked it because it was there. Well, then later, some kids in my class were talking about, and this is like seventh grade, how they would if, you know, at a party or whatever, and I never did that whole year, but the next summer, um, we all kind of went in and bought a bag and smoked pot, and then I told my cousin about it, and he was like, oh man, I got the hookup, you know, so... I, from a real early age, I was I was 13 uh, when he first basically started selling me weed. And he told me right away, I mean, you know, what you do, Matt, is get your buddy's money. And you put that up, and then yours is free. You know, you buy an ounce, because then you sell everything. You know, and he, he broke it down for me right away. So going into high school, I had this mentality. And I stole, I, I remember stealing my parents' lunch money and stealing the food. Like, I would take the lunch money, five bucks a day for lunch. To start this enterprise. Yeah, and then, like, <laughs> I would steal a burger in my pocket and eat it. You know what I mean? And I'd brag about it. And then on Saturday, I'd have 25 bucks. You know, and I'd throw that in with whatever they had, and I had weed all the time. And, I mean, this is at Alter High School, which is a, a Catholic high school, where it's pretty – I mean, the, the people there have money. Like, the you know, we didn't have as much money as the other people, and we were, we were fine. Like, we were well off. My dad's a lawyer. He wasn't doing that well when I was – that age, but I mean, we, we we didn't want for anything. So anyways, it just kind of progressed into um, people asking me for weed all the time. So like through my freshman year, I would get it. And I was smoking all the time. I'd even make a little extra money. I got a job at Fazoli's. And I remember seeing the guy at Fazoli's uh, with some weed on break. And I asked him if, if I could hit it. And I was always smoking weed. And, um, you know, by this time... I think I'd gotten drunk off whiskey once too, and I drank a little bit of beer at the family reunions between that time. So by the time I was 15, I mean, I was ordering bottles for my my friend Ann's older brother um, for the weekends, and we were smoking weed, you know, on the weekends, every weekend. And it just kind of went that way through high school. Uh, I played football. I remember the, the coaches getting us in trouble. You know, we would sneak out of practice to go smoke weed and smoke cigarettes up in the announcer's booth at the 
baseball diamond and we'd watch and then f- and then come back into practice yeah like well <laughs> we would we would just act like we had to go see a teacher we made up crazy excuses that's another thing i did i always uh had a lie on on you know right there on on hand i just whatever happened i was able to talk my way out of so i, I learned how to have a silver tongue from an early age too and uh you know, I'm, I'm a natural salesman. I really am. But I I just had the wrong intention. And I really didn't have, I was had a great heart. I was always good to my friends and everyone else. But I also had the ability to turn it off and split my life. I had this double life. Sort of like, well, you know, I have to be this way. But I'm going to fool them this way because I really want to go party too. And I like that attention I'm getting from, you know, and, and it turned into attention from girls oh, yeah. for having the, having the weed, being uh, having the hookup. Girls wanted to get high, so they're wanting to hang out with me alone, you know, just to smoke weed. And um, guys are, you know, oh, Matt's got the best weed, that kind of stuff. So, like, you know, I, I learned to, to really thrive on that attention. Um, and then it turned into acid early. I mean, we were probably 15, first time I did acid. Turned into 16, we were doing that all the time. My friends were doing it on Friday, like six period. They're dropping hits of acid and, going home fooling their parents and going out that night you know it just kept on going we were Mm -hmm. taking quaaludes back then and really uh, like like the original i don't know they said they were you know now that i'm older i know a little more about it i I have to think it's probably those fake roof and all pills from you know 714s from back in the day i don't know but um all i know is you take a half of this thing and you talk out yeah you just didn't remember what happened but we had the whole football team and all the cheerleaders all blacked out, waking up, didn't know where they were. You know what I mean? It was just a party class. A bunch of zombies. Yeah. The situation was bad. So, you know, from an early age, it was like party, party, party. And it was always, um, you know, get your schoolwork done, you know, go to practice. Because by now I liked football. So I'm trying to, like, be on the varsity team. This is sophomore year, going into junior okay. year. Okay. So, but you're keeping, your, you're keeping it together. Yeah. As far as... Showing up for class and I was you know, doing a little bit of book work. You know, I always had C's. I was never a great student. That's exactly what I was, dude. Yeah, it's just, just like enough floating it. by, yep. you know, exactly. Just yep. enough to make it. Um, when I was a freshman, I got 60 demerits. You were only allowed 60 demerits, and then you got kicked out. They gave me a, a little ultimatum, like, you, you get 30 demerits a year, every year until you graduate. Um, and if you exceed that, you're out. You know, but we'll keep you so in school. So demerits are sort of like what we would have got, like detention or referrals or something like that. Yeah, like uh, you get, basically it's just, yeah, you can get so many, then you got a Saturday school. For behavior or, and stuff like that. Yeah, Grades. even, you know, even having your shirt untucked, being late to school, oh, it was wow. pretty strict. So, okay. um, but I stuck to it. I did real well all the way up to my senior year. And I ended up being really good at football. I ended up being a starting player. You know, my junior year, I started on special teams. Senior year, I started on on a varsity team as a, a right tackle. I was 215-pound tackle. But, you know, I did really well. Um, the coaches liked me, but they questioned me about smoking weed, and they'd heard about me. And I think they were trying to find a reason to kick me out because uh, I ended up having a Saturday school exceeding that 30 demerit limit um, after football season my senior year. And um, I got kicked out. I ended up graduating from Fairmont from the public school. So they stuck to their word? They did. And wow. What ha- well, I shouldn't say that. They put me in a Saturday school, and then next thing I knew, um, you know, in that Saturday school, I'm writing a letter about a nun 
because my best friend, she was giving him a hard time and his letter was terrible. It uh, had a picture of her with like a gun to her head. I don't know what I was thinking. Like it was just some real immature. Yeah. So she had cuss words in it. She read it and she, it basically got me kicked out. But, you know, prior to that, the partying got out of control. I mean, right after football season, my senior year, I went crazy because um, junior year, we partied the whole time. And I mean, smoking weed, drinking liquor, like a lot. And um, senior year, during the week, as much as you could. I mean, I'd say I was going to the library and I'd be going taking shots, hot shots and stuff. (laughs) We called them pot shots, smoking bongs, taking shots of liquor. And um, my senior year, I got real serious about football and I decided I wasn't going to drink or anything. And I did, after every game, I'd smoke one joint. That was it, my whole my whole senior year. Other than that, I didn't do anything. I didn't drink or anything. So after football season, I kind of just let loose. And all my friends had tried cocaine by then. Um, I told them they were dumb because, you know, I said, man, that's getting you, you guys are getting getting into some some crazy stuff. And I'd seen a lot of people snorting lines at parties. And I'm like, man, that's, that's, that's really crazy. And. Uh, after senior year football season, my next door neighbor who went to a different school, he came over and he knocked on my door. I was grounded, asked my parents if he could talk to me. He said he had girl troubles. And my mom was like, all right. We walked up to the church by my house and sat on the curb and he pulled out an eight ball of Coke and I snorted the whole thing with him. Mm. And uh, from then, man, I that was like my devil. Like I started, uh, I started doing Coke pretty much every day. I mean, all the way through... The rest of my senior year, when I got kicked out, went to Fairmont. I got out at one o'clock in the afternoon because my I had so many credits. Um, was selling weed to everybody. Was selling coke at that point to support that. Um, the cocaine was cheap. It was really good. This is like '96 going into '97, and then through '97. Um, and then I went. I got accepted to Eastern right before I got kicked out, so I didn't care. I was partied, you know. I was already accepted into college, so. And they had in-state tuition, so my parents were going to help me out and pay it. So I went down to Eastern. When I got down there, I pledged a fraternity. Turns out it's my dad's fraternity. I didn't even know that. You didn't know. I didn't know. So they were recruiting me pretty hard. And um, Yeah, I was the first father-son legacy um, at our in our chapter. So I think Mike's a legacy, too. Michael Emery, I'm pretty sure he is. So um, anyways, um, you know, I started partying down there pretty hard. Weren't supposed to do drugs, but they drank liquor in the mornings, afternoon. I mean, in Kentucky, it was crazy. They were drinking bourbon all the time. So um, I just kept drinking. I was one of the best drinkers I knew. I could. So did you up. go down? You went down to Eastern in fall of 96? Fall of 97. Fall of 97. Yep. Yeah. So we were doing the same shit 30 yeah. miles apart. I was in Lexington. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. And um, so you were there for the national championship and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. We were, we were one of the first... We were probably one of the first 30 people to that intersection. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So and I was there, was, too. Were you really? Yeah. So and there were 10 people arrested that night, and three of them were from my hometown. Oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> crazy, man. But that was wild. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, um, we started to – guys started to kind of come out of their shell at our pledge class because what happened was when we pledged a fraternity – they said no drugs, and they were really hard on us and hazed us really bad. We were the last year they really hazed. Was there no that. blow or anything really going around in the, with the actives? And Well, there was, but they acted like there wasn't. And okay. we didn't know, but we had heard we were kind of the drug fraternity is what people were telling us. 
oh man, you're pledging the you're pledging the partiers, man. And they're like, they don't let you do drugs? They're doing it. And I'm like, well, whatever. Well, we started having guys from like Bullet County in Kentucky and outside of Louisville and different places running home and getting. I mean, we had enough money put together because I'm still selling weed to these guys. Um, we're putting money together and buying half ounces, ounces of coke just to do. And we're all partying so hard that the actives kind of knew it. And when I initiated uh, my fraternity, Beta Theta Pi, I ended up kind of getting this really good hookup out of Cincinnati, and I started selling a lot of coke to those guys. So, like, I so became— So you're dealing with your weight. I was. Yeah. I started getting a lot more than I'd ever had before. Yeah. And it was kind of still a party thing, you know what I mean? But um, I also, like, was talking to guys. I knew how to handle myself a little bit better than some of my friends did because I'd been—I knew how to talk the language. So, you know, here I'm I'm starting to get, like, they're like, man, I got this quarter key. You know, do you want to hold on to this? Can you pay me? I'm like, yeah. Acting like it's no big deal. And really, I don't have a clue how I'm going to sell it. And then it sold, you know. So, like, I quickly became an established drug dealer there in Richmond in a small town. And as we moved forward, school kind of took the back burner. And then pain pills came along because all the bars started getting shut down. ABC came in and started shutting down all the bars. So a lot of people were having house parties and they're all doing Vicodins, Percocets, I mean, Xanax, stuff like that, which I never, you know, we had those Quaaludes in high school, but we weren't doing pain pills or I didn't even know what it was. And um, so I'm starting to like grab a hundred of each, you know, to sell those because I see people like those. And I'm like, I guess kind of like, Watching too many mob movies or what, I don't know. But I always was that guy that wanted to be on top of it. I wanted the control. I liked the power the of having it. Yeah. So were you were you kind of the guy for, for your crew and the crew around uh, Richmond? I mean. Yeah, for our fraternity, I turned into that guy. I mean, and, and there were other guys around that were from Richmond that started to take notice of that. And we started working together doing okay. stuff. And um, I never really had any kind of beef or, you know, any guys competing with me. I always tried to make them partners or do what I could because I wasn't a violent guy or anything. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make some money and party. I wanted to have as much money to live as like a rock star. Right. You know, is how I looked at it. Well, then I met a girl. We moved in together and she kind of said, you can keep doing this, but you can't do the cocaine. But She said you can make all the money. And she kind of managed the money and we started to kind of make real money you know she was the reason i was able to make a lot of real money and uh i ended up um you know kind of just kind of like choosing that as a career um did you lay off the toot i mean did you in front of her you know <laughs> but when she when every time i could i was i was in it but you know uh, there was a lot of it at that point so it didn't really matter and i was a, a pain pill addict so I was um, slowly getting a really bad addiction. I so once you got introduced to those, it was pretty much over. As yeah, far, as I started far as addiction to that. Yeah, I mean, I would pop. You know, to me, it was like a way to get high. This is how I used to think of it. I can get high during the day, no one will know, because I can pop a couple of Vicodin tens, and nobody will really know that I'm high. You know, but I feel buzzing. I'm zooming. Right. And then when I start drinking, I get, you know, too messed up. I can just take a line of coke. I'll be good. So, like, I started having combinations of drugs every day, all day. And, I mean, I'm 21, you know what I mean, doing this. So, like, 
did that for a few years. Um, and you're able to keep your business venture, like stay on top of it with nobody giving you oh yeah people to answer to or anything like that? No, I mean, yeah, people love me. They would front me a bunch of stuff. I would pay for it. Sometimes I'd buy it up front. Sometimes and I would just put money away. And, and no, I mean, we traveled. And no I, heat at this point. No, no heat at all. Um, things were going really well. Um, then You're the like girl, a little baby Scarface. Well, I thought I was. Right. You know, really right. in reality, I didn't. Know, I didn't have a clue. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But things were going a little too well. I just had good luck. You know, and, and God was never in my life. I mean, when I was a Catholic, when I was you know living in a Catholic family. You know, it was like church was terrible. You know, that was just something. That was a byproduct of what our life was. I mean, my parents went, and they seemed to like it. I didn't like it. No relation, so, no real relationship. No. So I didn't really have too much of a conscience. I mean, I did, but as much as, like, someone that's living in the world and, you know, listening to all the 18, rap songs. 1920. Yeah. Right. And you're listening to what Young Jeezy says, or not even Young Jeezy back then. You know, it's listening to Master P and wondering. <laughs> Biggie, right. You know, so... That's what I was doing, you know, and uh, I, I ate it up. I thought it was great. Well, I had a really good friend that graduated college, and he ended up going and being a mortgage broker. And he said, you're a great salesman. I want to get you out of this life because you're out of control. He was like, why don't you come work for me? So I went to Lexington and worked for him for about a year and uh, dropped out of school to do it. And the interest rates rose. Um, you know, I couldn't really make any money. It was straight commission. And I went broke. I got evicted from my apartment. The girl, same girl, she moved to Louisville. And um, so, did you shut everything down for that year? Well, kind of. Um, I started to, and then I ended up getting pills online because I still had the addiction. You know what I mean? So I ended up getting the Vicodins and Xanax online. I started doing more Xanax now, drinking, and I found a really good coke hookup right there in town. So I'm selling to the guys in the office. You know what I mean? And using a lot more, and then. At this point, I'd started cooking up the Coke because I learned how to do it from a guy who um, just kind of told me that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to smoke crack. Did I have any of that? I'm like, no. And he said, well, your Coke's really good. Um, you should learn to cook it. And I went and talked to one of my buddies who showed me how. And when I did, the guy was like, I got a gram for 40. The guy's paying 100 after I cooked it up. So I'm like, well, if I more than double my money, it's pretty good. So on a gram, you know what I mean? So like eventually after I did that a few times, this one guy, I was like, I want to try that. So I smoked it. So now I know how to cook and I like to smoke it. So like that became a big problem too. So I didn't tell anybody about that. You know, I was just, I, I wanted to be alone a lot for that reason. So at night after going and trying to sell home loans, I'm going to this apartment and um, I lived there right, right there at Stony Falls, you know, Stony Falls mm -hmm. and Armstrong Mill. I lived there. One of my best friends lived at Stony Falls. Okay. So, yeah. That's so, crazy. I lived right there. And um, my but my guy that I worked for lived on Trent right there off Armstrong Mill. Yeah. So, like, you know, we were – I was always running over there and running around that area of Lexington and trying to hustle something up because the mortgages weren't selling. So, no, I didn't intend to sell, but I was still an addict. So, like, I had a whole bunch of money when I quit school to go be a mortgage broker, and it had dwindled down to nothing. Is this, like, what, 99, 2000? No, this, this actually pushed all the way into 
because I didn't even start that. I mean, I kind of skipped forward pretty pretty far. I probably didn't start that till like 2004. Okay. So like by this time I'm almost 25 or I am okay. 25, yeah. turning 26. And um, so in 05, you know, I ended up basically, I had worked at Carabas intermittently between, you know, being in school, but from the time I was 20 to 25. So I went back to Carabas at uh, Hamburg Pavilion and I got my job back there. So I started uh, working there and I couldn't afford my apartment. I got evicted. So I found a little $300 a month apartment in Richmond, moved down there. And when I did, I'd made a really good pill hookup and a good weed hookup. And I brought a pound of weed and a hundred Percocets. So I went down to Richmond, you know, I'm making money serving. I'm selling some pills and stuff. So serving. you're commuting. Yeah. So I'm going from Richmond to Lexington. Right. And my thought was I'll get back in school, you know, finish my degree. Well, and I got my parents removed. You know, they're paying for a lot more than they ever should be. Oh, yeah, I was Silver a mortgage time. broker, and it didn't work out. So now I just need a little bit of help to get by. So I paid a few months up front of my apartment. You know, gave me a little bit of money to bail me out. And that was always what it was. I was always getting myself in trouble. they bail me out. I'd be able to bail myself out with some dope. I'd move forward. You know, I would never hit a bottom, and I never had too many legal problems. I'd had a couple DUIs by that point. I'd had like a disorderly conduct and a fight and a fraternity stuff, stuff you can explain away through college. You right. know what I mean? But right. it was never a drug possession, never a possession of marijuana even. So like, anyways, um, I'm doing that and I end up um, going back to Richmond and I met this girl who was like, I was trying to sell these pills to and she's like, oh, nobody likes those. They like Oxycontins. Mm. And so she introduces me to Oxycontin, sells me a half a pill for 50 bucks. Well, I said that was too much money, so I ended up going to Louisville and buying uh, 100 of these Oxy-20s is how it started. Long story short, that turned into me getting this connection from Detroit. Me and my buddy uh, Tyler, we ended up doing all this stuff. Again, saying, he's like, if I came down there with 700 pills, can you get rid of them? We're like, oh, yeah. And we had no idea who we were going to sell them to. So he came down and we got rid of them. And it was like, how long, that, how long did that take? It only took like two days. So he stayed in a hotel and our other buddy, their parents, his parents managed the uh, Ramada off, off of uh, Winchester Road down there on 75. So they would come stay there and they had adjoining rooms. He would check them into adjoining rooms. We'd go sit up in the room. I'd have these people pull up. You know, I'd, or I'd drive them in my car if they didn't trust me. And they'd give me the money, be sitting in my car with the keys. I'd run up with the money, sit in the room. My dude would go next door to the adjoining room, come back. I'd bring him the pills and, you know, we're making a killing. So we did that for a long time. I mean, did, did you have nerves at all about getting, I mean, like, were you, got back to this, you know, back to the shy little kid. I mean, are you, you have butterflies or, I mean, are you, are you just reckless and don't give a shit? I mean, the one thing about me that I've always heard from my friends was like, you're just wild, dude. Like, you don't care. Like, it, nothing. And, and it didn't. I always felt like, I always had a thought that, like, I was too, I, I can get to a point, but I'm not pushing bricks. So they're not going to care about me. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't want to know. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of guys, I think, in the game after being to prison and everything else, they know the, con they're like lawyers. I mean, they know every consequence for every amount of drug that you could ever possess. I didn't know any of that. I didn't want to. Okay. I was just out there making money how I could. Right. You know, if somebody had something, I was finding a way to push it. 
And again, I'm getting a lot of praise for it. Like that 700 pills that went, these guys were like, we were their best friends. Loving on you. You know, these white boys from Kentucky were the best thing these thugs from Detroit had ever met. You know, these guys were gangbangers up there. And they're like, you boys are hustlers. And we like that. We like being hustlers, you know. So I'm just young and dumb, man, a lot of money. I mean, we had, you know, I ran up there with 35,000 bucks buying pills with it, you know, of someone else's money and just pulling off like 6,000, you know, to put in my pocket in, in an hour. And you're just like, it's, 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 it's addictive. Yeah. The, the running and gunning. I can't imagine. So we ran into this sweet little hustle. I ended up finding, basically we kind of ended up finding people in different cities. I had a lot of, I had actually three guys in Mount Vernon who had quite a bit of money to invest. You know, each of them had like seven or eight grand that they're throwing. And then I had a couple guys in Richmond and then I got a guy out in, in Independence, Kentucky and all the way out to Prestonsburg and like just guys I knew from college, yeah. you know, that had people from home. So you had a little circuit. Well, yeah. I mean, and I had... Now, are you doing are you doing oxys at this point? Yes. So what I would do is, you know, I would keep reinvesting. So like all the money, because we had to buy all this big number of pills, I would sell out the hundreds to the people that were paying for it, and then I'd buy more with mine, and then I'd go back to Richmond and sell them for a hundred apiece, and then all that money would just get double, triple, quadrupled up, you know, and I'd have like twenty pills myself. So that's a great question because that. What ended up happening was I started snorting an entire Oxy-80 in a line. I remember the day I did it. One line. So like one line was an Oxy-80. Ugh. So then once you hit that point, you anything less really doesn't get you high. I mean, anything less is just keeping you from getting sick. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about that either. I just was, you know, these guys are taking files and shaving down little parts and stuff. I'm crushing a whole one, snorting it, and they're like... You're crazy. And I'm like, nah, man, I mean, it's a pill. Like, it's a $100 pill. I'm like, nah. So, you know, like, then it got to where I'd, be, I'd do seven, eight, ten a day some days. I mean, like, there'd be days when we're doing 10 pills. And it's like, all that came crashing to a halt when, um, basically, man, I had a bunch of weed from a guy that was growing it. And his landlord was doing an appraisal on his apartment. I didn't know he was growing. I was selling it for him. And he was like, dude, you're the only one that sells it for me. And I was like, oh, I didn't know. He's like, well, I don't want anyone else to know I have it. So I got to bring these plants to your house because we're getting ready to have this appraisal. And there was like 30 plants and they're like full grown, big budded plants. And he's like, you can keep whatever's there. I just need to get them out of here. I can't throw them in the dumpster. I'm like, all right, bring them over. So he brings them over and I was going to go trade some for some Coke. You know, because by now I'm not really selling coke. I'm just doing it. And I put them in my car and I went inside and snorted an 80 and I nodded off. And a couple hours later, this cop is banging at my door. Mm. So I got this case where possession of marijuana ended up being a, it was a felony cultivation charge because I had lights and everything in my apartment, but none of it was set up. So we got knocked down to this possession. I had to move to Dayton, get out of Kentucky for two years. Well, I didn't really end up happening. I moved to Dayton found another oxy hookup stayed in Dayton for seven or eight months and ended up selling pills to my Kentucky people from Dayton with cheaper prices because I met these people working at this hotel that had the pills cheaper so I got people driving two hours up to get them you know what I mean and so it just continued I kept using them I used a little less a little less um so so just probation 
What, was it probation? It was a non-reported probation too. It was just like, get out of Kentucky, dude. Okay. And basically it was my- Don't come back. Yeah. It was my fraternity brother's last case be before he became a judge. And he basically used all his favors up. Again, I got bailed out. So like, I got that felony knocked down to a possession. I ended up breaking it, coming back. I met like the guy who took over for me with the oxys pretty much was crazy. And he ended up losing the connection. And I, I was the one that was coming into town looking for some free pills to take them to and from Detroit, trying to get a connection here and there. And I ended up making it. So I started selling them again. And I got like three guys. I dropped one off, take the other one back to, to, to Richmond. He sent my apartment sell out the pills for like three or four days, get them all gone. He'd just front them to me, sell them. But like, we're going through thousands a week. I mean, we're going through a lot of pills and um, I'm making all this money. Well, long story short, um, the cops ended up busting us. So uh, I sold to a guy who stole stuff out of the back of a Walmart for a living. And he ended up, um, I ended up cutting him off because he told me what he did, how he got his money because he was doing 20 pills a day you know, him and his girlfriend were, and I cut him off. So he went behind my back and started buying them from my guy in my apartment when I was gone. Well, then he wore a camera in on my guy in my apartment, and I came home in the middle of it. So all that happened, that was in 09, and we all got busted that night, okay? That's the short story. Um, there's also a part of that where I a guy tried to rob me that day, uh, pulled a gun on me. Um, I basically took off hit him with my car and rolled off, went back, um, gave the pills back to my guy because it was, it was they were supposed to buy 30 pills and they were trying to rob me. And they came back to rob us in that apartment. And I had some guys over with some guns and they got a bunch of guns in their face and ran away. So things became a little bit violent. And it's the first time anything like that had ever happened. So like- This is all in one day. All in one day. And that night we got raided. So what sucks about that is from a uh ci yes well the ci came in and did a control buy and then they raided later that night all right so what sucks is we had handguns in my apartment mm. which really were only there for like four hours i and mean that really that raises the stakes yeah so uh i ended up getting arrested i got a fellow possession of drugs uh, all the handguns were accounted for uh two guys had them registered um so did you get like felon in possession of a handgun, that whole thing? or Not right away. I just got a, a generic felony possession of, of drugs charge, felony possession of paraphernalia because I had crack, a couple crack pipes and some scales and a bong and a like quarter pound of weed, like 200 Percocets. And I had, uh, they found 420 Oxy-80s. And um, long story short, they took us to the, the Richmond Madison County uh, Detention Center. We stayed there three months. And I withdrew from drugs harder than I've withdrawn. I mean, I've never known a withdrawal. And that was like, I almost died. So I was taking like five Xanax bars a day. I was doing, like I said, anywhere from seven to 10 Oxy-80s a day. I was drinking. Uh, I went straight into jail. And when I did, I was, you know, pooping on myself, puking on myself. Um, it was horrible. Having these crazy dreams. My dreams and reality were mixing. My parents came down to visit and I told them I was hooked on drugs. And I said, you know, I never really knew what drugs could do. And now I know I'm going to need help because I'm I'm a drug addict. You know, I never had that conversation with them. Um, I ended up kind of going crazy. 
I got punched in the face by a guy because I was spitting on his blanket in my sleep. I don't remember it. Um, tried to fight him, but I was so I had two guys in the cell held me back and said I was just out of my mind so that they, you know, they didn't want to see me get hurt. I don't know. So I woke up naked in a cell, an isolation cell. And when I did, a doctor came in, asked me what I was withdrawing from. I told him Oxycontin, and he said, uh, well, it's not that. That was out of your system in five days. You've been in here seven. So I said, well, maybe cocaine. He said, no, same thing. I said, well, what about Xanax? And he was like, that could be it, but I can't do anything for you. You got to drink all the water you can and eat something. He said, that's the only thing that's going to save you. You might die from this. So that, like, woke me up, and I started chugging this water, got healthy, kind of got back in. They put me back in the original cell with the same guys, and those guys were like, oh, get out of here, you know. And then I was like, what, man? You got a problem? You know, and they looked at me, and they all started laughing, like, who's this? Because they t started telling me how crazy I was. And, just out of uh, your mind. Yeah, they said it was just, it was no a totally different person. And I mean, I remember some of it. Right. I still remember some of the dreams. And it's like crazy stuff, man. Right. I thought they had 12 packs of beer in the in the jail. I thought they had a key to the cell and were leaving at night. And, you know, just crazy stuff. Right. But so I realized how strong drugs really were. I realized what drugs could really do to you. But they ended up, uh, I thought I was going to sit down about five years on that. You know, it's what I figured. But one day my dad came and said, hey, they're going to let you out today. And it was only been about three months. I was kind of skeptical. And my lawyer said, look, the state passed up your charges. That means the Fed's going to pick them up. So he said, we don't know when, but for now, go home, keep your nose clean, get a job, live your life. And, you know, I'm going to hold on to 12500 12, That's 5000 for the state stuff we just went through in 7500 I'm holding in case the feds come. That'll start your case. I said, okay, whatever. So I went home to Dayton. Ended up going to L.A. with my sister, you know, hanging out with the family. Got sober-minded. I was just like, I'm going to I'm gonna be clean and sober. But I still smoked cigarettes. I got a job at J. Alexander's Restaurant. And I went out and drank with the people after work. And I thought, I'm not doing drugs, so I'm cool. Right. So I started drinking, smoking cigarettes. I started trying to, like, mingle, hang out. You know, and uh, slowly but surely, man, I mean, people started smoking weed around me. Um, I ended up having a cousin who, um, you know, married a guy that, that had an apartment for me. And I went to get that apartment and he said, hey, you know, I asked him because he used to have real good weed back in the day. I said, hey, man, I'm thinking about smoking weed again, but I don't want to smoke this crap they got at the restaurant. You still got that good bud. And he's like. Yeah, 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 I got it, you know. And I was like, well, I'll get a quarter or something off you. And he was like, no, I don't do that. I was like, well, what do you need me to buy, like an ounce? He's like, no, I don't do anything less than a pound. So I'm like, well, I don't have the money for that. How much does that cost? He said $4,500. I'm thinking, that's crazy. I thought he was crazy. So I'm like, whatever, never mind. He's like, but I'll get you in this apartment, blah, blah, blah. So I moved in the apartment, and then he was like, hey, uh, check your freezer. When you get, you know, once you get settled in, check your freezer. And I opened the freezer and there's 12 quarter pound bags of this stuff that was glowing. And I mean, amazing. And uh, so it was three pounds of weed he put in there. And um, I didn't know anybody. And I felt that pressure again and wanted to do good for him and wanted to, you know, meet people. And so it's the best weed I'd ever seen in my life. So I'm like, wanted to smoke it. Wanted to, you know, I was working in a restaurant. I was like, whatever. And I ended up, selling all that in a couple weeks. And um, I had all this money, asked for more. 
He was all impressed. Then started the whole thing again. Then I met a guy with Vicodins. Then I went to Percocets. Started doing Percocets. I did Percocets for the next few years. Um, so it's about, well, it was until about 2012. I guess it was a few years. 2012, I started doing the Roxy 30s. Uh, looking for Oxycontins. They told me they didn't make them the same anymore. You couldn't get high off them. So, um, you know, I started getting those Percocets off of these older older guys, older men and women that went to this doctor in Dayton, and I would find myself down in, you know, the bad side of town, you know, on the west, east side of Dayton, uh, running around, running these people around getting pills. And in the midst of it, this older guy uh, that I became pretty good buddies with, he he snorted heroin. So, like, every once in a while, I'd snort some heroin with him, you know, because it was just like doing the oxys. But I, it didn't really make me addicted or anything. I'd just still do Percocets, but... I was open to that now. So I got pulled over with a couple pounds of weed, a couple hundred perks, a gram of Coke, got put on probation in Kettering. Um, I ended up um, kind of like just having everything taken from me that day. Um, I, 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 I got pulled over with all that stuff, put on probation. Shortly after that, I was growing weed too, and I had my weed room raided. It's a long story, but that's basically what happened. Um, I lost everything. I lost my car. I lost twenty six thousand bucks cash. I lost um, just a lot of stuff. Moved back in with my parents, and I had this habit. So I had a guy that owed me uh, fifteen Roxy fifteens. So I rode my bike to his house because I was dope sick. I needed some. So I'm riding my bike to his house. I get there. I do the pills. Um, trying to get a hustle going. I ended up robbing my weed guy for like ten thousand bucks. I ended up uh, reinvesting in some weed. People shorted me, didn't pay me. I was on my own, didn't have anybody help me out. So it was either like, I'm going to drive around and what beat all these people up or try to be a tough guy. Or So I took a loss. You know, things were dwindling down. Things were getting rough. I started selling pills and going to heroin. So I started snorting heroin, selling pills, getting money, flipping like 100 Percocets. You know, Roxy 30s, making big money off that, six or 700 bucks and then buying heroin for myself. So for about eight months, I did heroin, and then I ended up shooting it. I was living with a guy who um, was shooting heroin, and I just saw how much it was gonna take to snort and get high, and I saw how little he was doing. I was like, give me a needle, and I shot up. So from that point, I shot up heroin, and then it was shortly after that coke and smoking crack, and that was every day. So I started hustling little stuff, being kind of just a grimy guy. Um, and I ended up uh, doing that on probation until I got caught. Got caught with a crack pipe a couple times. Long story short, I did that for a few months and then got arrested. So I went in for a probation status hearing, and the judge was like, you've you've messed up so bad, your PO doesn't even want to talk to you. I'm just going to put you in jail. So when he did, I had fake urine in my pocket, you know, because I'm always trying to get out of everything. Uh, he found that instead of going to the 42-day stop program in Dayton, he extended that to the six-month Monday program because um, I had the fake urine. And so I'm waiting on the Monday program. I'm sitting in jail. I'm working commissary, stealing commissary, buying crack in jail, buying, you know, heroin in jail. I mean, whatever they had, you know, working on the worker's pod. Been in there a few months, thought it was sweet, thought it was funny. Um, then my PO came in and said, hey, man, I'm lifting everything that the state's got on you. Uh, the feds are going to come pick you up. 
I don't know why. He says something out of Lexington, Kentucky. So I'm like, okay. So then the feds came and got me. And that started a whole process. What was that back to the get out of Lexington, get out of Kentucky thing? From 2009. And in the meantime, my lawyer had sent that 7500 bucks back. So, you know, I thought I was in the clear. Come to find out I wasn't. So ended up getting my, uh, you know, federal charges in Dayton. I was charged with the handguns. I was charged with uh, felony possession of a firearm during the furtherance of a drug crime. Um, conspiracy to distribute oxycodone and conspiracy to possess oxycodone. And um, I ended up, basically the the lawyer, the woman that was my lawyer said I was going to do 10 years. So things got real serious. I went to Butler County for 10 days, went down to uh, Fayette County. Then they shipped me off to Grayson County from a big air yard. Guys got ARs, you know, walk in the air yard. It's con air. I'm like, oh my gosh, man. Dude. I got like, ended up going to court. Uh, I signed for eight years and basically the drug quantity came back a little bit lower. It was converted to less than a hundred, um, kilos of, of weed, which meant that I was at a 57 to 71 month, um, you know, guideline. So instead of the 87 to 104, I signed for. So basically I ended up getting 60 months. So the judge sentenced me to 60 months, sends me to Oklahoma city on Con Air again, I wait, you know, flies me out, shackles me up, delouses me naked in front of all these dudes, marching me down to Big Isle, oh. freezing cold, you know, the whole nine. Um, I learn about segregation. I learn about, you know, sticking to my people, um, who wants me to run with who and all this, you know, it was the whole thing. I'd, prison. Prison. So I'm, I'm navigating through this and they end up sending me to this little kitty daycare camp, Milan, Michigan, low security prison and and uh it was it was sweet so when i get there on the way there i made a connection for percocets so the only guy in the whole compound of 1500 inmates that gets a script of percocets i was next to on the plane and i think god did that for me man but i anyways i get there and he promises me you know basically all his percocets so i got a little pill addiction in prison mom and dad still got them schmoozed so they're sending me a few hundred bucks a month. So, you know, I find a hustle in the in the kitchen, start stealing all their food. I mean, I did this in high school. It's no big deal. I'll steal all these bags of meat and stuff. I'm selling for stamps. I learn their system. Start getting the stamps, find out who has the K2, the weed. I'm treating it just like the streets. I'm hustling in prison. So I did really well at that for the first year. Um, my charges that were in the state, I ended up coming back to court for those, random concurrent. Um, got it. Nine felony charges. Got it all ran into basically two. Uh, one was a possession of marijuana, a thousand to five thousand grams for the state, and the other one was uh, my fe- my my uh, uh, federal charge, which was conspiracy to distribute oxycodone. So those are my two f- felony charges. So I'm like, whatever, man. I'm a felon, whatever. No big deal. I'm in there hustling. I'm going to get high these few years, and I remember it. That's what I was thinking. Making hooch, I'm drinking in prison. You know what I mean? I'm just trying to be the cool guy again. Well, I get busted. Out of the blue, these guys do a raid in prison on me and three guys I'm walking with, and they find six caps, which is basically, caps a very small amount you know, of K2, but it'd be like an ounce on the streets, you know, six ounces, but it's like six caps. So... You know, I find find it in my sock. 
I don't tell him I don't know what it is, but I go to the shoe for seven weeks and don't talk. And when I did that, my best friend from Brooklyn was coming to visit me. So he flew to Dayton. My my sister from LA is coming to visit me. So she flew to Dayton. And my mom and dad, because it's around Christmas time, are you know going to come up. They're all going to come up and see me in this visit. Well, I was such a knucklehead. I lost my visits, my emails, visits, phone, and commissary for a year because I wouldn't tell them what it was. So they gave the book, they threw the book at me. So I lost, I didn't lose any time, but I lost all my privileges for a year. So I'm sitting in the shoe, sick. I can't talk to anybody, just like whatever. I'm telling everybody, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit. I get out on the compound. And when they let me out after seven weeks of sitting in a cell where it's like you're, you're eating on the toilet. I mean, it's a toilet, a sink, and a bed. And you don't leave it at all for seven weeks. I mean, it's solitary confinement. So I'm sitting there. They let me out. As soon as I get out, the guy I got the K2 from was like, man, I heard you were in there holding it down. You didn't say a word. He said, I know you didn't because you were in there a long time. He said, I'm going to double you up. I'll give you six for 100. So I couldn't say no, so I did it. So I'm getting high again. Get caught again, thrown back in the shoe. Next thing I know, they're like, you know, holding me there and telling me I'm going to get transferred to a medium security prison. So they're kicking me out of a prison, federal prison. So I'm in there, and it's at this time when my buddy tells me that I'm going to have to carry a knife. I'm going to have to um, basically do things for other people that I don't want to do. And if I don't do it, my own people are going to stab me up or beat me up. I'm getting kind of nervous because I never, I wasn't a gangbanger. I didn't run with any gangs. And during this time, I'm laying on the top bunk of my rack and I'm sitting there. I'm really like so nervous. I'd never felt anxiety like that in my life. And I'm laying there and it was like I went into a dream. I wasn't sleeping though. And I saw a vision. And it's for weirdly, like I said, I had no relationship with God at all. And all of a sudden, it's like what I would think was Jesus popped in front of my face. It was like, you can't see a face, but you see the silhouette of this shining light. But it's a man. And he's basically like, Matt, you got a choice. You can continue to do this and have the same results. Or you can live a life that you never knew was possible for you. And I'm just like taking all this in. And I'm like, that was weird, you know what I mean? And it goes away, and the next day, I start seeing all these, like, I'm reading a book. You know, it was weird stuff, like talking about this amphibious craft that was going around in this Nelson DeMille book. And then the guy next door to me in the cell was telling me about this boat that goes off. It's a bus that floats in the water in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm like, that's weird to be talking about something like that out of the blue when I'm reading about it. It was just these things... Signs. Signs. Very obvious signs. And I was like, man, that was real. You know, maybe there is a God type of thing. So I start thinking it, it affected me pretty greatly. So I start talking differently. I go back through transit to get taken to Terre Haute, Indiana. I go back into Oklahoma City. I'm not talking about drugs or for a guy from New Jersey, if he's getting keys for what price. You know, I'm talking about what are you going to do when you get out? Start thinking differently. Um, I get to Terre Haute. And I got it. my roommate from the streets is there because when I left, he started robbing banks with a guy I used to sell heroin to, with a guy I was a, a celly with in county. And they were all telling everybody in this prison, this medium security world-known prison, that uh, they lived with this guy that was the biggest hustler anybody ever knew. Built me up. 
So when I get there, all these guys are like, oh, I heard about you, man. You know, and I, again, I like the attention. It was a new prison. I didn't want to be in there holding knives and doing stuff. So I took it in. They're like, come down to my cell. They're passing me joints, pills. Couldn't say no. So I got high again as soon as I get there. And I ended up um, going back to my cell and crying about that every day. And when I did, um, I, I started a... I started to think about my life and I went into the orientation and I saw this woman talk about the drug program and I raised my hand and said, I want to go into it. It gave me enough to want to ask for help. So when I went into the drug program, I got high on Suboxone the night I was in there and I told her, I said, I'm high. You know, I got high last night. I'm still high and I don't want to get high anymore. I want you to hold me accountable. So where you, did you, this Jesus thing, was it, did it stay with you? Well, not, was, not at first, Okay. but as we moved forward, um, a guy in there said, I'm going to church instead of playing volleyball is the short story. And I was like, well, let me go check that out. When I went into the Christian church, they were singing. Um, Chaplain Woods, this guy was talking about Paul's walk and how, you know, um, how much he had changed when, when, you know, he knew Christ was real. And when, you know, like all the different things that I kind of knew about were starting to happen to me. I asked a guy in my group, uh, my NA group, how he prayed. And he told me he used a daily bread and, you know, prayed prayers of gratitude first. And then, you know, I started to have a relationship with Jesus and God. And when I got out, um, I immediately saw positive results. I started to guide a, men, a Christian men's group. I found a church. I didn't talk to any of the friends I've talked to before. Um, my cousin that I looked up to so much passed away from a drug overdose. My roommate that I saw in Terre Haute, when I first got there, died of a drug overdose right when he got out. The guy we sold heroin to died of a drug overdose right when he got out. I was the only one that had made it. And, uh, you know, I'm sober now four years. It'll be five years in April. And it's just like I couldn't do it without God. Right. So now I'm like, you know, everything through the church. I struggle, but it's a whole new life. It's like a whole new um, set of challenges that I love because it's like I thought for so long that I was exclusive, that I did things other people couldn't. Really, I had blinders on. Right. It was like I was able to take those off when the drugs were gone and see what I've been missing. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Now I want to help people. I mean, it's hard. You want to be so selfish. Tell me about about uh, City Hustle. What? So City Hustle is a group. When I started that men's group, um, our friend Josh, who was kind of like my mentor after I got out, he was hustling with me back in the day, a big a big dealer in, in Kettering back when I was ripping and roaring. Um, he had changed his life while I was gone. I wanted to speak to kids and just affect as many people as he could doing things like this. So we started talking to some kids on juvenile probation, uh, to Vandalia High School in Dayton, um, just different places, you know, that anywhere that would let us. And we just started talking in church. Um, and then he's like, well, let's get on City Hustle and do testimonies. So I got on City Hustle and did my testimony. He did his. Our friend Cole did his. Then we were like, let's do a weekly episode where we can talk about what it's like to be a, a Christian man that has struggles, you know what I mean? As a single guy trying to do the right thing, let's talk about our problems now. So we started doing that, picking a scripture, talking about how God had guided us, listening to him, having a relationship, what all that means. I mean, instead of just saying, you know, praise God, it's like, well, how? How do you praise God? And right. What, like what does that mean it. in your life? You know, what's that mean for you and others? So it's wow. pretty cool. So we're still we're trying to get it rolling. 
it's one of those things where like they have a lot of groups that already give to the homeless that already um you know are helping with addiction but we're trying to meet them where they're at right maybe find people out of prison that are trying to stay sober and do it on a one-on-one basis help them get a job interview coach them you know how to talk and speak to, to employers right stuff like that so. so what's your recovery look like man i'll tell you what mine um kids and so i ended up meeting the girl of my dreams she uh I worked with a guy. I ended up getting a job as an electrician apprentice in, in the union. And we worked for a construction company. And a guy I was working with at that construction company was a pastor. And I told him that the biggest you know, hurdle I was going to have was finding the right kind of girl. And he's like, oh, I got a perfect one. So she goes to my church. And she has three kids. And I was like, ooh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. But it uh, turns out she saw my testimony on City Hustle. And she reached out to me on Facebook like, I love your your story. And We've never stopped talking since, and now we're getting married in October. And, uh, Congrats. <laughs> thanks, man. And she has a, a nine-year-old, seven-year-old, and a four-year-old, and they're like my kids now. Right. You know, and I always wanted kids, but, um, you know, I, I didn't really – I don't know. Their dad passed away, so it's like a blessing. It's right. a real cool thing. Yeah. So it just keeps – I keep seeing positive results. Right. As I go, well, I mess up every day, but – Sure. You know, um I, I remember everything too. Right. You know, I, it's amazing. Your memory comes back and it's, it really is. It's, it's going from being a total disaster to being, uh, feeling good, not waking up with a hangover. I mean, it's just, it, but like you said, I mean, it is not easy. It is, a, no. it is a struggle. Every day is a struggle, but you know, gratitude. That's it. Is something that, you know, it's easy to go. Woe is me. It's easy to go to a pity party. Um, and those happen daily, but when you when you you know when I throw it all up on the wall and think about how much differently the story could have ended. Sure, I should be dead. Yes, I should be dead. Yeah, dude, I got Jail, pistol whipped. Uh, yeah, during the middle of a, a drug deal, shattered my jaw in three places. Had it wired up for ten weeks. I mean, I've um, I've done heroin to the point where I was like nodding off and. My dad ran out to the car and was like, Matt, Matt, shaking me, scared I was dead. You know, I mean, my parents swore they thought I was going to And how die. many chances you got, you know? Same yeah. with me. It, it's just, so gratitude is what keeps me checked in. Yeah. You, know, you play the tape back, it's like, man, this could have gone down so much differently, you know? And so, man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you you cruising down here to, to spend some time with me man yeah, i appreciate I mean, you having me yeah it means you know. a lot man yeah so, it's been great yeah so just you know all we gotta do is continue the march and uh things will happen when they're supposed to happen you know that's right that's it cool man well right. thanks trevor you got it yeah thanks for listening i want to thank everyone that makes this show possible production by gwen sound artwork by neltner small batch and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.